This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department got most of what it wanted in last week's 2022 budget agreement. In some cases, it got more. But Congress left out one small but important request. Pentagon planners had hoped it would enable more agile modernization by updating how the department pays for software development. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Massioni join me now with this and more from their latest DOD Reporter's Notebook. And Jared, tell us more about that funding issue. It has to do with the color of money that the DOD was hoping it could get retinted, sounds like. The whole bright idea here is to completely eliminate the concept of different colors of money when it comes to software. Something initially proposed by the Defense Innovation Board back in 2019 and then later championed at the highest level by former DOD Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ellen Lord, although the idea has been around for quite a while. So that's that's essentially the idea is that you put the entire funding stream for an entire software project into one account, essentially. In this case, it would be RD, and our RDT and E account, but it doesn't really matter. The only important issue is that you're not having to decide whether O&M money applies or RDT and E money applies or if procurement money applies at any given time the way you would with a weapon system, which obviously makes no sense for software. In the uh, appropriations omnibus bill that just passed last week, Congress has decided not to allow DOD to expand this pilot program, which has gone by the name the software and digital technology pilot program in 2022. So at least for now, DOD is stuck with the eight individual programs that Congress greenlighted for this pilot back in 2021. DOD had proposed an additional five, including several that would allow Air Force participation for the first time. But for now, they're stuck with just the eight. The good news is they can continue to show progress there to Congress and and try to demystify this process and, and, and demonstrate to lawmakers that you can do this with adequate oversight. But for now, there's uh, there's there's not going to be any, any expansion allowed. Just maybe back up a notch for us and tell us what the advantage to having this non-colored money would be for software. Sounds like they're trying to distinguish it from the way they spend on developing, say, hardware systems or weapons platforms. Yeah, that's exactly right. The entire DoD budgeting process, both on the internal budgeting side and on the congressional appropriation side, is modeled on the way that DoD builds weapon systems. And, and there's some logic to that if you're building a main battle tank. So there's an RDT&E stage of the program and a funding stream that's in an RDT&E account. Then there's a procurement phase of the, of the program, then a procurement funding stream tied to that phase of the process and operations and maintenance and sustainment and on and on and on. The, the argument is that makes absolutely no sense for software, especially if you are moving into a modern software development world where you're doing DevSecOps, you're doing continuous delivery and following the mantra of the Software Innovation Board that software is never done. That whole concept absolutely makes zero sense. There's there's no procurement stage. There's no O&M stage. You're just constantly developing on and on and on. And, and, and using this funding model, several defense officials have told me, really just slows everything down because you've got to make sure all of the legal I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that you can justify using procurement money or O&M money or RDT&E money for any particular act activity. The idea behind this entire program is just get rid of all of those barriers completely and just give a single software program, in this case it's several large software programs, a single funding stream per program. Right. So this could then potentially hinder, say, JADC2 and programs at that level. Yeah, that's right. Or anything else that's trying to develop and, and use this iterative model. So I think Congress is hopefully going to decide relatively soon whether this is a good idea and whether they feel comfortable funding programs in this way and feeling like they're not losing a ton of oversight because 
it's pretty unanimous between defense technology and acquisition officials that this really is a hindrance to doing things quickly when it comes to technology development and software within DOD. And do we know why this got left out of the appropriations bill? And is there a chance Congress will reconsider that whole issue? There's definitely a chance. I think assuming we get something more like a normal appropriations process for the 2023 budget cycle, that the odds certainly go up. The most likely explanation, I think, is this was a bit of a truncated process since the Senate in particular kept kicking the can down the road. The Senate Appropriations Committee never even passed a defense spending bill this year, nor did the full Senate, obviously. So there wasn't that full deliberative process on the Senate side. The House actually did, and in their case, they approved a total of 12 um, of these pilot projects compared to the eight in the previous year. The only one that they actually rejected was the most massive one of them all, which was a very ambitious request by the Navy to move its entire $1 billion per year next generation enterprise network contract into this software technology pilot. So the House was willing to go along with this. It's possible the Senate would have been too if they had gone through a more regular order process this time. And Scott Mossioni at the other end of the technology spectrum, the giant fuel farm that has been there for many years in Hawaii for the Navy. There's some developments there in this thing that's been leaking and causing so many problems lately. What's going on? That's right. Well, the biggest issue with it most recently was actually a spill that the Defense Department says was operator created. And that ended up leaking into the aquifers and putting jet fuel into the water supply, making some people sick. The Congress in this new omnibus bill that they passed last week has $686 million for service around uh, mitigating the water contamination, also uh, some of the mitigation when it comes to the environment, and then finally closing this base uh, or this farm, as you said, $150 million of the funds will go to the closure of that the facility. Now, Lloyd Austin, the, the Secretary of Defense, he announced last week that they're going to be closing this uh, this farm, this fuel farm, and uh, that was a pretty big shock to people. They weren't really expecting it considering that this issue has been going on for years and as we said it's been uh it's been operating since 1943 since world war ii so this is a pretty strategic uh part of of fueling within the pacific realm Uh, however the defense department and the other military services think that they'll be able to just move a lot of the fuel around and also rely on some industry partners to make up for this one uh, closure of the fueling facility yeah because in the larger sense this relates to the u.s presence in the pacific which is based at hawaii so this is a strategic fuel facility because we have a strategic level of fleet that lives there, correct? That's exactly right. And one of the things that uh, Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro said last week is that he spent a lot of time with partners and allies talking about this, and they already have the locations necessary to distribute the fuel effectively without there being an enormous number of additional fuel farms to create to make up for this strategic uh, downturn. Uh, One of the things that was dangerous about uh, Red Hill was that uh, it sat above just 100, 100 feet 
above Oahu's main aquifer, which provides 77% of the potable water for the area. One Sierra Club of Hawaii statistic estimated that at least 180,000 gallons of fuel have been leaked into Hawaii's water supply from Red Hill in the past 80 years. So it's not a small amount, and a lot of the people who are living in Oahu right now are feeling the effects of the fuel leakage and the fuel spillage. They're getting uh, you know different things between nausea, diarrhea, headaches, and other problems, especially within children. And what is the timeline for moving the fuel out of there? There's several different types of fuels, and then removing the facility. This sounds like a multi-year effort. Yeah, they're actually trying to move on this pretty quickly. The Defense Department says that it's going to have a plan by the end of May, and then from there they're going to try and finish out things by the the uh, next year, the next 12 months. So that's a very fast timeline. Uh, of course, there's people that are not exactly happy about this. We've seen uh, some Republicans, including Jim Inhofe, the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and Mike Rogers, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, saying that they think this is a short-sighted and quick move, uh, considering, as you mentioned, that this is a very strategic location for the uh, the Pacific Arena. Federal News Network Scott Massioni and Jared Serbu check out their DOD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.